Jan broke and Alex was a waitress. She was waitressing at a Mexican restaurant at the time and waitresses get a lot of cash. And so um, I didn't know this, but for like a year and a half, she was just secretly taking five or $10 aside every single shift. And she saved up and surprised me with um, an acoustic guitar that I wanted for like 10 years. Just the most precious gift I could have received. Um, after the first year vertical, Alex sent my, my sermon manuscripts to a book publisher and had them make just one copy of my, my messages so that we could forever remember the first messages the Lord used to build this church. Unspeakably precious. What's the greatest gift you've ever received? Just recently, my wife actually collected a bunch of letters of encouragement uh, some of you guys wrote them, and she bound them in a leather-bound book and gave them to me so that I could be encouraged on the dark days. Two thoughts. My wife is amazing. And two, one of the reasons she is amazing is because maybe better than anyone, she understands that when you love someone, you seek to give them the gifts that you know will most bless their heart. All of us are in this room. We don't really have anything in common with one another other than our love for Jesus. Amen? And so it's fitting for us to be thinking, okay, what's the best gift that I can give to the one I love most? Jesus. Not just, not just in your mind, in Jesus' mind. What is the greatest gift that, that Jesus could receive from us today? I mean, if he's the one we love most, wouldn't we want to know what gift would bless his, his heart most and then do whatever we can to give that gift? Guys, according to Jesus, the greatest gift you can give him is a life of unashamed adoration. Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. This morning, we're going to feast on Mark 14. It's another one of Mark's sandwiches. So you guys, we've seen this now. There's seven times in the Gospel of Mark where Mark employs a literary device called a Markan sandwich. And that's where he takes uh, two events, the bread, and then there's a singular, seemingly unrelated event in the middle. That's the meat. And if you look at the meat through the pieces of bread, you'll see glory. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to see glory with the Spirit's help. When you're there, say there, Mark 14, verse 1. Okay, guys, let's go. Here it is. First piece of bread, Mark 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Most of us aren't Jewish, so we really don't know what this is. Remember, the, the Passover was a celebration that remembered when, in faith, in God's grace, the Jews put blood on their doorstep and God's wrath passed over. And the Passover kicked off a week-long feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which commemorated and remembered the Israelites' hurried exodus from Egypt when they couldn't even wait for the dough to rise, they had to eat unleavened bread. And so that's what's happening on the surface, but Mark is taking us deeper. He wants us to see something deeper in verse 1. It says it's two days before the Passover. Everyone see that? So it's Wednesday. And in two days, in the very year the prophet Daniel predicted, Daniel chapter 9, 
on the same day, in the same time when Passover lambs are to be slaughtered in the temple, Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, will be sacrificed as the final once and for all payment for everyone's sins who will place their trust in him. As we read that opening phrase in verse 1, we're supposed to hear the orchestra of God's providence playing perfectly in time. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. See it in the text. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him. What does that say? Nice and loud. Come on now. You know. By stealth. That's right. Just making sure it's in your Bible. By stealth. So the camera zooms in uh, from God's eternal timing down to some religious elites. And what are they doing? They're coming up with a plan to arrest and assassinate Jesus by stealth. Why? Why by stealth? We'll see it in verse 2. For, or because, they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. You guys, at, at this point, um, the crowds are still enthusiastic about Jesus, and so the religious aficionados want to kill Jesus, but they are once again afraid of the people. In, in the Gospel of Mark, over and over, we see that the religious leaders, um, there's always a note that they fear people. In Mark 11, they won't answer Jesus' question about where the authority of John the Baptist comes from. Why? Mark 11, 32, for they were afraid of what the people would do because everyone believed that John was a prophet. In the very next chapter, right after Jesus says he's the cornerstone, Mark 12, 12 says, and they began to seek to arrest him, but they feared the people. Again and again, Mark wants us to see that religious people, what they fear the most is not what God thinks about them, but what people think about them. That the deepest desire of a religious person is not to please God, it's to please people. And correspondingly, their deepest fear is not the fear of God, it's the fear of people. This morning's passage is a passage on unashamed adoration, but before we even get there, Mark gives us the first hindrance to unashamed adoration. It's this, it's the fear of people. If you're taking that notes, write that down. The fear of people is the first hindrance to unashamed adoration. Now, when I use the word adoration, I'm referring to the comprehensive, all-encompassing lifestyle of exalting Jesus by enjoying him. Whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. But let's talk about what we just did, musical worship for a second. Maybe as we're singing to the Lord, you want to raise your hands. You want to dance in celebration. Uh, you want to bow down in reverence, but you don't. Because you're afraid, not of God, but of someone unknown sitting behind you. You think if you jump in joy, they'll think you're a crazy charismatic, or if you bow in reverence that you're somehow rolling out your righteousness, and so what do you do? You just, you just stand there, and you allow the fear of people behind you to hinder and hold back your adoration of Jesus Christ. 
what could be unashamed worship is subdued to singing held captive by fear. And to that, I would just note, when the president, if you struggle with that fear, like, like if I do something, am I going to be distracting from the glory of God? When the, when the president deplanes from Air Force One, servicemen stand in concrete postures of salute, right? Now, does anyone ever look at them and say, hey, put your hand down, you're, de- you're distracting from the president's glory? No, no, we, we know that that posture doesn't distract from the president's glory, it points to it, Right? Likewise, when we see people in the presence of God bowing down or raising their hands in authentic worship, we're not to look at them, we're we're, we're to look through them. Biblically, physical postures of worship do not distract from God's glory, they display it. The first hindrance to unashamed adoration is the fear of people. That's the first slice of bread in Mark's sandwich Now let's look at the second one down in verse 10. Verse 10, these things actually are connected. We'll see it in a minute. Verse 10, it says this, Then Judas Iscariot, one uh, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in in order to betray him to them. So the religious leaders, guys, they now find their answer to kill Jesus in stealth. One of Jesus' own disciples seeks them out to destroy Jesus. Did you see that in verse 10? They didn't go to Judas. They didn't like hear that Judas was going sideways and went to him. No, verse 10 says, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. So the religious leaders finally get what they want. They finally get what they value most, a way to kill Jesus without losing the respect and admiration of people. And now in return, Judas gets what he values most. See it in verse 11. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him what? Money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Matthew tells us that the agreed upon price for Jesus was 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. Um, You see, the amount of silver is a statement. He's not our master. We're his. We're not his slave. He's ours. But looking at at Judas, we see a second hindrance to worship, a second hindrance to unashamed adoration is, is the love of money. And that brings us to the meat of Mark's sandwich now in verse three. So those are our lenses, two hindrances to the, to unashamed adoration, the fear of people, the love of money. Let's go now to verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So they're in Bethany now. It's a village about two miles outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is in the house of Simon the leper. Now, according to Levitical law, lepers could not attend dinner parties. They certainly couldn't throw dinner parties. And so almost certainly Simon was a leper who had been miraculously healed by Jesus. And in the Gospel of John, we're told that this is also the house of Lazarus, a man who was just raised from the dead 
a chapter earlier. So Simon the leper is most likely the father of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And they're throwing a party to celebrate Jesus for for healing Simon of his leprosy and raising Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus is, says he's reclining at the table. The customary posture for uh, fancy meals in the first century Israel was to eat, not sitting on a, on a chair, but actually laying on the couch. And I know what you're like. You're like, hey, I eat on the couch. I'm more like Jesus than I thought. <laughs> Sanctification, right? So picture the scene. The table is here. They're laying on their side. They're eating. Now listen to John's account, verse 2. This is John 12, verse 2. It says, So they gave him a dinner. Martha served. Of course, Martha, Martha served, right? Martha, Martha. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Can you imagine the conversation? Verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. So now we know who the, the woman is. It's, it's Mary. And Martha serving, and Mary is once again watching. And she's probably thinking about her dad. I mean, he used to be a social outcast. Due to his leprosy, he wasn't allowed to go anywhere. Certainly no one had stepped into this house for years. And she's looking around and dad's healthy. He's smiling for the first time that I can remember. The house is packed. And the one who healed him with a single touch is sitting right there. She's probably thinking about her brother. Lazarus. I mean, he had been sick for weeks, so sick that Mary and Martha send word to Jesus, get here now. Jesus delays and Lazarus dies. And Mary was the one who prepared the body for burial. And so she's sitting there thinking, like he was dead. I, I know, like he was starting to stink, that kind of dead. He was stiff. I laid his body in the tomb, and now he's right there. And he's eating, and he's laughing, and he's talking to the one who raised him from the dead with three words, Lazarus, come forth. So Mary's just watching this dinner party. And at some point, she gets up, and she goes and gets a 12-ounce jar of pure nard. Nard oil was extracted from a plant native to northern India. It was extremely expensive. In fact, look down at Mark 14, verse 5. We're told how expensive it was. Mark 14, 5. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. A denarii was a day's wage. So let's just do the math. The average salary last year in the U.S. was about $56,000 or $154 a day. If this oil is worth 300 days wages, then in today's currency, this little jar of oil is worth about $46,000. Do you guys own anything worth $46,000? An item of this value was almost certainly a family heirloom 
It was probably the most precious thing this family owned. Um, Mary and Martha and Lazarus had probably grown up getting warned all the time by Simon and their mom, hey, hey, not by the nard, right? Take that outside, not by the nard. It had probably been passed down for several generations. It was by far the most valuable, probably the only valuable thing this family owned. With that context, read verse 3 again. And while in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he's reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. The best gift you can give Jesus is unashamed adoration. And what God wants us to see through Mary is that unashamed adoration treasures Jesus above all things. In this day, if you were hosting a very special guest for a very special dinner, it was customary to anoint the guest of honor's head with a drop of oil. Mary doesn't use a drop, she uses the whole thing. She pours it all out on Jesus' head. John says his feet also. And the point is she doesn't care, you guys, what it's worth. She doesn't care how long it's been in the family. She doesn't care that once you pour it out, you can't put it back in. She she doesn't care that it's going to be gone forever. For Mary, she loved Jesus so much that she wanted to take the most valuable thing she had and spend it all on Jesus to communicate to Jesus and to everyone else in the room, he is worth more. So let me just ask you, what? is the most valuable thing in your life? What is the most valuable thing in your life? Your appearance, your career, your future, your house, your hobby. What do you think about most often? If you're daydreaming, you're daydreaming about this. What do you find most safety and satisfaction in owning? Is it money in the bank? What do you find most comfort in having? Is it a relationship? You just have to be in a relationship. What would be the single worst thing to lose? Maybe a sibling or a spouse or a child. The best gift you can give to Jesus is to take the most valuable thing in your life and pour it all out for Jesus. Notice what Mary doesn't do. She doesn't say, hey, Jesus, theoretically, you're worth more to me than this thing. She doesn't say, like, hey, this would be yours if you wanted it. No, the beauty is that she proves it, you guys. She breaks it and she pours it out. She breaks the flask, thereby repurposing the oil to now magnify the surpassing worth of Jesus. Much of what passes for Christian worship today is just theoretical adoration. For sure, Jesus is the most valuable thing in my life. Yeah, 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 more more than my friends or my family or my future. Jesus is for sure my treasure. And Jesus is saying today, "Then, then pour it out. The greatest gift you can give Jesus is to take the most valuable thing in your life, and when I say pour it out, I mean repurpose it. 
to communicate to Jesus and to everyone else around you, he's worth more. Pour it out. So if you, if you value your house more than anything, then pour it out by transforming it from a self-serving, isolated place of comfort to an other-serving, open place of hospitality where you warmly extend the welcome of Jesus. Pour it out. If you value your career more than anything, then pour it out by repurposing it from focusing on career advancement to gospel advancement, from making money to making much of Jesus. That at least your coworkers would say, I don't know about Jesus, but that per- I've never met someone like that. Pour it out. One way we do this with our relationships, our friends, our spouse, our kids, is by repurposing the relationship to make it clear, listen, you don't exist for me. You exist for him. And so I'm going to love you, not so that you love me. I'm going to love you in a way that makes you love him. My job as your dad, my job as your husband, my job as your friend, my job as your pastor is to simply give you more reasons every single day to love Jesus. Pour it out. When we see Jesus as Mary sees Jesus, as the one who can heal us from the greatest sickness, namely sin, when we see Jesus as the, as the way Mary sees Jesus, as the one who resurrects us from the death, like solves the death problem, then we repurpose that which is most valuable to us, our finances, our, our futures, our families, our friends, our lives, to communicate to Jesus and to everyone, Jesus is worth more. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now look at verse 4. Verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Anyone want to guess who said that? Any, any guesses? Judas. John tells us, John 12, 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Can you see now the purpose of the sandwich? Mark is contrasting Judas and Mary. Judas loves money so much that he sells the most valuable object in the universe, Jesus. Mary loves Jesus so much that she shatters the most valuable object she owns for Jesus. And where does the love of money end? Judas is going to hang himself in three days because money can never deliver what it promises. Only Jesus can. Mary is the photo positive of Judas. And Mark is painting the picture. No one can serve two masters. Either you will love one and hate the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Guys, if you want to give Jesus the greatest gift, break the flask. 
Take the most valuable thing in your life, the thing you think about the most, the thing you find the most comfort in, the most satisfaction in having, the thing that you would, that would be worse to lose, and repurpose that thing to display to Jesus and to everyone, he is worth more. Whatever it is, use it to communicate to Jesus and to others that Jesus, not the perfect job, Jesus, not the perfect body, Jesus, not the perfect family, Jesus, not the perfect life, is my true treasure. So Judas, and apparently some others, say indignantly, why would you waste the ointment like that? Now look at verse 5. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. The Greek word translated scolded is unusually intense. It literally means to flare one's nostrils. Uh, one of the universal signs that an animal is about to attack is its nostrils will flare. And after watching Mary shatter the flask, they aren't just angry. They're on attack. They start scolding her. What did you do? Do you realize what you just did? Did you really just break that? Do you have any idea how much that was worth? Of course you don't. You're just a stupid woman. And at that, Jesus, always a defender of women, replies, verse 6, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done, underline this word, a beautiful thing to me. In the Greek, there are two words for good. There is agathos, which describes a thing which is morally good, and there is kalos, which describes a thing that is not only morally good, but lovely, beautiful, pleasing. Jesus uses that word. She has done a beautiful thing for me. Verse 7, for you always have the poor with you, and whatever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Guys, the best gift you can give Jesus is unashamed adoration. And what God wants us to see through Mary is that unashamed adoration seeks to please Jesus only. In this cultural context, guys, Mary is borderline out of line, isn't she? I mean, she's a woman, so you can't approach a rabbi unless the rabbi instructs you to do so. That's strike one. But, I mean, wouldn't it be the posture of humility to, I don't know, just run this by someone before you do it? Maybe pull one of the disciples aside and say, here, here's what I'm thinking. What do you, do you, what do you think? I mean, as a Minnesotan who, who believes that being perceived as impolite in someone's home is the highest degree of human suffering one could endure, <laughs> wouldn't you ask, like, Simon, it's your house. Are you okay with this getting all over your carpet? Like, can I do that? She doesn't ask. She doesn't care. More borderline out of line. Listen to the detail that John includes. John says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. Though it's not sexual, this is very, very intimate. It's borderline out of line. And people in the room hate it. And Jesus loves it. 
unashamed adoration seeks to please Jesus only. And the only way to do that is we could say, just let your hair down. Let your hair down like Mary. She doesn't clear it with Simon. She doesn't seek feedback from the disciples. Why? Because frankly, she doesn't care what they think. Mary knows that worship is for the one who's being worshipped and no one else. So she doesn't care about anyone's assessment of her adoration. And loved one, you didn't either. Before planting vertical, I was a worship pastor at a church where the worship wars were raging. I mean, it was strong. And every week, someone came up with all the authority of an Old Testament prophet and told us how we should be worshiping the Lord. And um, when I lead worship, I like to jump and I like to dance and rejoice because I think the tomb is empty, like Jesus isn't still in the grave. And so I celebrate. And one weekend, a woman came up to me and just started laying into me. And I gently stopped her and I said, I'm going to let you finish, but I don't want my listening to you to give you the impression that I care what you think, like at all. Now, is that rude? Yes, that's rude. But Jesus set a precedent that when you speak to self-appointed appraisers who feel a God-ordained duty to assess other people's worship, that sometimes you need to be so clear that it's perceived as being rude. Loved one, if you see someone worshiping, maybe a few rows ahead of you or up on stage or on a YouTube video or something, if you begin to appraise and assess the sincerity of their worship, every light on your spiritual dashboard should be going off. Danger, danger, danger. We see it in the Pharisees. We've seen it all through Mark with the religious elites that judging someone else's worship is one of the most dangerous things you can do because the very inspection of someone else's worship is the thing that keeps you from worshiping Jesus. I mean, I would venture to guess that there are people here who have never truly worshiped Jesus in a church gathering because they have been so preoccupied with evaluating other people's worship. And if that's you, Jesus wants to set you free today. Like, you don't have to be concerned with anyone else's worship. Romans 14, 4 says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. Christian, you are free to let people bring their best worship to Jesus according to their personality and how they're being led by the Spirit, and you can just be free to fixate and focus on Jesus himself. When it comes to worshiping Jesus, guys, you are free. So if you want to dance, I'm just saying pastorally here, on behalf of the elders, if you want to dance because the gospel is that good, I mean, if you want to dance because you're never going to die, then dance away. Like, spread out and dance. If you want to hoot and holler and shout because through Jesus, death has been defeated, Satan has been declawed, and the the punishment for sin has been done away with, then raise shouts of victory. Like, what a glorious thing to drive home from, from church losing your voice. I spent it all. And if you want to bow in reverence in God, to, to God's holiness and his righteousness and his justice, then, then find some room and let your knees bow to the Lord. 
If you want to raise your hands in ascription or keep them down in meditation, if you want to sing loud in celebration or just softly in repentance, you are free. Worship the Lord. All, we are, all we're asking pastorally, all the Lord is asking is that you love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. You guys, do you see? We, we see a hindrance. The hindrance to unashamed adoration is the love of money. And in Mark 14, we see the way to fight the love of money is to treasure Jesus above all things. Take what is most valuable to you and pour it out to the name and fame of Jesus. And we see the second hindrance to unashamed adoration is the fear of people. And in Mark 14, we say the way we fight that fear is to seek to please Jesus alone. Let your hair down. Be borderline out of line. Magnify the Lord. So Judas and the others are brutal toward this act of worship, but Jesus calls it beautiful. He defends it in verse 6 and 7. But guys, I actually think that the central verse in this text is verse 8. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, here's the ground clause, the reason why he thinks it's beautiful. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Point three, unashamed adoration does whatever it can. She's done what she could. Hey, if you don't have a life verse, consider this one. This is an epitaph. Here lies Chrysostomus. He has done what he could. I mean, is there anything greater that could be said about your life than for the name and fame of Jesus? You just, you did everything you could. I love verse eight because it's both simple and stretching. It's simple. It answers life's biggest questions. How can I live for the Lord? How can I make my life count? How can I leave a legacy for generations behind me? How can I personally advance the cause of Christ? Listen, just do what you can. You're not called to do all the things. Just call, you're called to do your thing. Just do your thing. If you're a mom, just be the best mom you can be to the glory of God. If you're a student, you just give your best to your studies. If you're a husband or a father, you go to work and you give your best, and then you come home, second shift, give your best, Right? It's beautiful in the eyes of Jesus. Uh, is a, what, what is beautiful in the eyes of Jesus is simply a man or woman who is just doing what he or she can. It's so simple. But also it's stretching. Just do what you can, but listen, do everything you can. Mary didn't give him a crown or robe. She didn't have that. She only had a jar of oil, but she spent all of it on Jesus. Jesus isn't asking you to do more than you can do, but he is asking you to do everything that you can do. So leverage every hour to knowing and enjoying Jesus. Direct every conversation somehow back to the Lord and his grace. Enjoy every meal and minute as a tangible expression of God's kindness coming down to you. Live every day loving God and loving those around you. And then at your funeral, a pastor, maybe it'll be me, will stand up and tell your loved ones, she did everything she could. 
He did everything he could. More importantly, Jesus will look at your life and say, well done. You have done everything you could. Now get in here and let me show you what I did with all those seemingly fruitless acts of worship. Verse 9, Jesus says, And truly, I say, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Not only in verse 9, uh, not only is that being fulfilled in real time right here at Vertical Church today, but the point is, her unashamed adoration was so precious to Jesus that neither the whole world nor Jesus himself would ever forget it. And loved one, the same can be true for you. Don't love money. Love Jesus and treasure him above all things by repurposing all things to further enjoy and exalt Jesus. Don't fear people. Seek to please Jesus only. You let your hair down. Be borderline out of line and your reverent enjoyment of Jesus will never be forgotten. Do whatever you can, not more than you can, but everything you can. And Jesus will never forget it. Let's pray.